All right, while everybody is gathering in, coming in, finding their seat, let's go over the announcements. First of all, the annual men's campout is this weekend. According to the Weather Channel, current forecast, 80% chance of rain Friday in Pattison, Texas, and a 50% chance of rain on uh, 80% Friday, 50% on Saturday. Now, if you've been watching the weather like I have for the last week, you know that in four hours, that's going to be 20% and 10%, and then six hours later, it's going to be back to 80, because that's how it's been. But it seems to be getting more and more of an increasing chance of rain on Friday. I'm going to make a final decision tomorrow at noon, so be alert to that. But right now, it doesn't look like we'll be camping out this weekend. If we don't camp out, we will still have men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning and then deacons meeting. We'll just go back to our regular, our regular schedule. Okay? So that's the plan. Also, information on the D.C. Bible Museum trip and um, <clears throat> Israel trip are up on the website. And also remember, we're, we every year we support the Samaritan's Purse Christmas boxes, which were, is a ministry of Franklin Graham, which we're doing again this year. And there's information and boxes out in the fellowship hall. The deadline for returning those boxes is on November 12th. And I want to make uh, one comment here uh, about the Bible Museum. If any of you uh, read uh, newspaper articles or see links to various things, there was a, I won't call it a hit piece because it didn't quite rise to that level, but there was an article published in the Washington Post this morning about the Bible Museum that was, um, I think it was specifically designed to discourage conservative Christians from uh, going to the Bible Museum. And if you're knowledgeable about the people who are quoted in there, you know that these are people who would also have great problems with our doctrinal statement. They'd get to about the third paragraph and they'd start hemorrhaging. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, it makes me wonder why in the world somebody would write something like that. And the way they're attacking it is, they said, well, there's very little in there about Jesus. Well, it's not a museum to Christianity. It's a museum of the Bible and the impact of the Bible and the importance of the Bible. And their approach is an approach that grows out of the Reformation that when Gutenberg invented the printing press and after the Bible was um, translated into the language of the people and was printed and people could read the Bible for themselves. The preaching of the Reformation was tremendous, but when people could read what the Bible said for themselves, it turned Europe upside down. That was the real power of the Reformation. The Word of God got into the hands of people, and it's the Word of God that's alive and powerful. And that is a driving philosophy behind this. They're not promoting any theological agenda, which bothers some people. But they do believe the Bible is the Word of God, and they treat it as the, as the inerrant, infallible Word of God. But they present, uh, and, and their mission statement is to get people to engage with the Bible. Because they, do, they believe that if people will do that, it will transform lives. 
And so <clears throat> I've already known of one pastor who had somebody at his church send him something and say, you know, with the idea that, well, do we really want to be involved with this? Well, if you're going to listen to the liberals publishing in one of the most liberal, anti-God, anti-Bible uh, newspapers in the country, then you're not taking your marching orders from anybody that you ought to be. Okay, so don't let the liberals dis, you know, color your approach to something like, uh, like this. There's always a lot more to the backstory than what they want because they have, they have their own agenda. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall my brain is shot today. What did I say? They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Thank you, John. He vocalizes every time I say that, which all of you should do. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, we will have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and ready to uh, focus on his word. One of the things you should pray for, Saturday morning we had our memorial service for Sally Davis. About that same time, Joanne Price, who's been on our prayer list and who had had a stroke the Saturday before, uh, went to be with the Lord. Her memorial service was held this morning at 11 o'clock in Kerrville, Texas. That's why I'm a little spacey. I had to drive to San Antonio last night. I went there and then drove back today from doing that um, that memorial service. So it's been a, a long couple of days and three days of pastoral ministry. So you can pray for me as well during these times. So let's bow our heads together. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together, that we can celebrate your grace. Every time we come together and we study your word, we're reminded of all that you've done for us and all that you've provided for us. And Father, we're just thankful for the things that we see around us, the cool weather we're experiencing after the front, beautiful day that we had today, uh, the opportunity to live one more day for you and to study your word and to learn about you and to be able to use this information to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ and our salvation, to be able to be a faithful witness by our lives as well as our lips. Father, we pray that as we continue this study that we may be challenged by the way David thought about his crises, his problems, the difficulties he faced, 
and that we can see how these eternal principles transfer to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Psalm 18. And Psalm 18 was written by David after he learned that Saul had been killed on Mount Gilboa and that all of his enemies were gone and he would be the next king. And God had brought to fruition here this this promise. And so it is a, a prayer of thanksgiving. And it's a prayer of joy, and it's a lengthy psalm, 50 verses. I thought we would go through this fairly quickly. There's so much. It's a wonderful, wonderful psalm, and there's so much to learn from it and so so much to be challenged by, and I pointed that out. And especially the introductory verses, verses 1 through 3, which we focused on, and in those verses, we see the intro to the theme where the psalmist expresses his gratitude and joy and praise for the Lord's miraculous deliverance by explaining the circumstances and of his distress and the merciful response of God to his pleas for deliverance. And we're focusing on the those those uh, <clears throat> pleas for deliverance in the last in verses three, four, and five. And then he begins in verse 6 to talk about how God responded to that. And it's, the focus is on, on prayer. When we face crisis, whether they're small, whether they're big, there's nothing too small to take to the Lord. And practicing taking the small uh, adversities to the Lord gives us into that frame of reference and that habit of taking the big things to the Lord, trusting in Him. Uh, throughout these things. And so we see in verse 3 at the end of the summary last time, I will call upon the Lord. It's translated as a as a future tense in English, but it's really more of a gnomic principle, the way it should be translated from the from the Hebrew, I call upon the Lord, who who should be praised. There's a the the way it's phrased in the in the uh, Hebrew expresses this idea as he's the one who should be praised or the one to be praised. And so shall I be delivered uh, from my enemies. And it's stated more as a gnomic principle. I call upon the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. And because he's the one who delivers me from my enemies, he's witnessed this time and time again as he has gone through these attacks from Saul, attacks from the Philistines, and and again and again, he has turned to the Lord to deliver them. And whenever we see uh, David go through crises, and we see others, we see Paul, we see Peter, we see the Lord Jesus Christ as we're studying on Sunday morning in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's always three ways God delivers us in times of adversity. He either, either delivers us by removing the adversity. He delivers us from the adversity by removing the adversity. Or second, he delivers us through the adversity. We go through that. We go through the events, the storms of life, and God uh, protects us and provides for us as we go through that. Or he delivers us out of it completely, and he takes us to be with him. So those are the three things that happen. He either removes the adversity, he protects and provides for us as we go through the adversity, or he removes us completely out and takes us to be uh, with him. So David says he is the one, he delivers us, he answers prayer, and he's answered prayer. It's a, it's a universal statement here. 
And then he goes on in the next section is a description of God's supernatural intervention to deliver him from the enemies which threaten his life. And the descriptions here are are quite metaphorical. They're quite graphic. They build on and use a number of images that are seen in other places in Scripture. And the idea is to to uh, help us to understand because it appeals to our emotion. It's not wanting us to be emotional, but when we're going through difficult times, and some of us have been through really difficult times, some of us are going to go through difficult times, and we're just pleading with the Lord to deliver us because we don't see any way out. And that is what David describes in uh, the first section in verses 4 and 5, his disastrous situation. He doesn't see, didn't see a way out. He thought that he would die. There, that was the, his test. Is he going to trust God for his promise to bring him to the throne? And again and again, he's just surrounded and pressured by enemies. And so he, is, he was crying out uh, to the Lord. And as we saw last time, he uses these terms like the literally the cords of death. New, New American Standard translate that way. It's not the pains of death surrounded me. It's the cords of death, a picture of being tied up and and restrained. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're just you're you're in a straitjacket and you can't get away from it. And death will have its way with you. And then he talks about the uh, <clears throat> the pangs of uh, Sheol lay hold of me, and that ties these words um, words together into the next verse. In verse 4, the pangs or the cords of death surrounded me, and you see this parallel between death and Sheol, that this is what the writer wants us to understand. So the first line should be the cords of death, the second line, not pangs, but it's this word metzar, which is the word for for uh, uh, distress, the distress of Sheol laid hold of me. And I want you to notice, because as we get into the next section uh, this evening, which starts in verse 6, verse 6 begins, in my distress. And it's not, uh, it, it's this, it's the word sar here without the M in the uh, front of it. And so this is... Um, how he's talking, found trouble, tsara, distress. See, in, you miss this in the English. All these words should be translated in English in the same sense because the, the root of all of these terms that are translated pangs, trouble, and then distress are the same Hebrew root. That ties it together for us. He's emphasizing how horrific his circumstances were for him. And then in the conclusion of verse 4, he says the floods or the floodwaters, the, the river overflowing, that's the, uh, the, the picture there, much something that we can understand here in Houston after the floods of Hurricane Harvey, the floods of ungodliness. And that's the Hebrew word Belial. And Belial is a word you've heard because you've been, you've had pastors who taught you about Belial and use that phrase. And there's a couple of places in translations where they transliterate it, but often they translate it into uh, different meanings, which are more often interpreted rather than translated. 
And one of the things I learned from uh, Dr. Robert Thomas, and by the way, those of you who remember Dr. Thomas, he spoke at either the second or third uh, Chafer conference that we had. He went to be with the Lord in early September this year. He was 99 years old. That means he was probably 89 or 90 when he came to speak to us. Uh, Just a tremendous man, tremendous impact. He died the day after Dr. Stan Toussaint died. And that happened, we were just in a week or so after the flood, so some of that just kind of got lost in the, in the general, uh, uh, general events that were going on there. But these are two great men who spent their lives teaching. And I was talking to Tommy the other day, and he had found a series on the Internet of Dr. Toussaint teaching Revelation when he was the pastor of Irving Bible Church. And he said there were th- there were phrases that he used that sounded really familiar. And I realized that Charlie Clough was going to Irving Bible Church when Dr. Toussaint was teaching Revelation. So we're all influenced by these things. So I just thought you would be interested in that. But I closed out last time talking about what the Bible teaches about these SOBs, sons of Belial. And and it's important because when you look up a lot of verses, you read verses where this is the Hebrew, you don't see it in the text. It's translated fools or it's translated worthless people or it's translated in some other way, those who are destroyed. And you miss the point in the Hebrew. It gets never consistent. But when you look at how it's used, and word usage is always determined by context, when you look at how it's used, it always describes acts of wickedness or evil that result in the breakdown of social order. And the big term that we hear from from many in our culture and in the world today is social justice. But what happens is the irony of this is that's just a bogus phrase because it's not about social justice. If you observe what they do, it's about increasing social chaos. Those who participate in this are the sons of Belial. That's the kind of thing that we see throughout throughout Scripture, and they attack the divine institutions. And this is so important to understand. It leads to breakdowns of personal responsibility. It leads to breakdown of marriage, family, government, and nations. And God has established the boundaries that should be defended in nations, Acts 17.27, so we shouldn't have open borders. If you don't like nationalism, because that's getting a lot of bad press today, If you don't like nationalism, think, what is the alternative? What's the alternative to nationalism? The alternative is internationalism, open borders, uh, people just moving back and forth. It's a breakdown of law and order, which would lead to greater chaos, which would call upon the need to have some uh, powerful entity, some one-world power come in to solve the chaos, which is an open door for someone like the Bible predicts will come, uh, the person known as the Antichrist. Okay. Okay, Belial. Four things I pointed out. It describes acts of wickedness that result in the breakdown of social order. Second, unchecked sin and evil are self-destructive. And when you don't have laws that restrain evil, then it destroys a culture 
and that will destroy a nation. And it's just been repeated over and over and over again throughout history. It's what happened to the various aboriginal tribes that inhabited in different stages North America, South America, but it happened in Europe, it happened in Africa, it happened in Asia, because this is the result of living in a corrupt and fallen world. In in David and in the Psalms, this is a polemic, the use of this term is a polemic against the gods of the Canaanites because they saw that chaos was such a powerful force that they deified it and they deified death. And so it's those terms that, uh, that, that as, as David uses them, he's showing in this, in this whole psalm that it is God who has power over chaos and God who has power over, uh, over death. And then last, we, I pointed out that the wicked are self-absorbed and their behavior will destroy society. Now, for some reason, something funky is going on here. I had to go to an upgraded program here, so it's a little weird. For some reason, my other older keynote program would not open tonight at all. Okay, verse 4 closes out. This is describes God's, uh, what God has done. It says, the, uh, or, or David's situation, he says, the, the cords of Sheol surrounded me. So I want to stop and talk about Sheol. Sheol is a major term that we find in the Psalms. Now, what does that mean? Now, in a few places, you'll even find the English text translating Sheol as hell. That's an even more confusing term because for most people, hell is the lake of fire. In the New Testament, you find some passages that translate Gehenna as hell. That adds to the confusion because in some of those passages where it talks about the person who in Matthew um, in Matthew five, I think it's five seven, that the person who hates his brother is is guilty or is worthy of hellfire, and it makes it sound like if you hate someone, then you're going to lose your salvation. But it's Gehenna there, and you have to study all these terms out. The English English word hell comes from a Norse word, doesn't even have anything to do with a Greco-Roman or uh, (coughs) Hebrew background. So we have to see what the Bible teaches about Sheol. And one of the things you notice when you, or at least I notice when I began to study these things and read in the lexicons and read in the theological uh, dictionaries, is you have writers who come from all these different perspectives, and they're more and more influenced today by by a liberal agenda that doesn't have a view of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, that ha- doesn't have a, a solid view of everything that has happened in scripture, more, in scripture, and more often they come with the idea that the biblical writers were influenced and got their ideas from pagan cultures around them, and then they transformed them a little bit because their underlying presupposition is that religion evolved. It's not something that's revealed by God, but it is something that humans developed and evolved over the years. And so it's a real denial of supernaturalism in uh, history and the creation uh, stories of the Bible. So... What does the Bible teach about Sheol? Well, the word Sheol has three basic meanings as it's used in, especially in poetic literature. And always remember that when you're dealing with poetry, whether it's English poetry or Hebrew poetry, 
the language is much more figurative than it is in in something that is to be taken literal. For example, if you read the word death in the context of a legal document that has to do with what happens when a person is deceased, then you know this is taken literally to refer to physical death, and it has a very technical term. But if you see the word death, and it's used in a, let's say, a Shakespearean sonnet, then you know that it may not be referring to physical death at all. It just may be referring to an intense pain or uh, the desire not to be alive right now or just that, that, that sense of something that a dead person might go through. It's very figurative. And so we have to always think about it. And in, in the Hebrew poetry, because there's a rhyming of ideas in the parallelism, when you see, often you see lines like we'll see here, that when you see the mention of the, snare, the, the sorrows of Sheol in verse 5, it is parallel to the snares of death. So the, the, the sorrows are the, uh, there, the cords, which should be translated the cords of Sheol, is parallel to the snares of death. Cords and snares, you see the parallel there, and Sheol and death are parallel. So you see here that the meaning of Sheol is not the meaning, the first meaning I have up here, which is the grave, which is where the dead body goes, but it is the second meaning, which is death. So in the grave is more of a metaphorical term because that's where a dead person goes. And then the third meaning of Sheol has to do with a specific location. This is where the immaterial part of an individual goes, and it's uh, different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Sheol refers to one place that is divided, and one part is called, later we learn it's called Abraham's bosom or paradise, and that's where the saved go. And another part is called torments, and that's where the unsaved go. And in the Old Testament, if you died, you weren't face-to-face with the Lord because the Lord had not come yet to pay the penalty for sin. You went to Sheol. Uh, Sheol was not the lake of fire. It was like a holding pen. It was as if you've committed a crime today, and you go down, and you're adjudicated to be guilty, and you're sent to the jail, the county jail, for a while until you are transferred to state prison. So this is a holding pen until the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. So be careful to not confuse Sheol with the lake of fire uh, or with Gehenna, and it should not be translated hell because that just leads to uh, more confusion. So it's used as a synonym for grave, which is just where the dead person goes, and death, there is no remembrance of you in the grave, Sheol, who will give you thanks. So this is how it's uh, used here in Sheol. Uh, Psalm 16.10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So Sheol here isn't talking about the 
uh, in destiny for the immaterial part of man, but it is talking about the grave. You'll not leave my soul, my life in, in the grave because the grave, it corrupts. You go back six months later and you see what has happened with the deterioration of the body. And this is a passage that is used later and applied to the Lord that the, that uh, Jesus Christ, that he did not see corruption in the grave, that he was raised from the dead. And so this would have more of that sense of being in the grave. It's a place for the wicked. So we know from the Old Testament that the wicked went there as well. The wicked shall be turned into hell. See, there's that bad translation of Sheol is hell. The wicked shall be turned into Sheol and all the nations that forget God. So it's the destiny for the unsaved as well. It's a definite location. In Job chapter 11, verse 8, uh, Job says that they are higher higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. So you see, heaven is above, Sheol is below, and it is deep. So it refers to a specific location. We also <clears throat> have it used as a metaphor just for adversity. Just It's just describing untold adversity that is compared to death, as if I were dead. And sometimes it's translated pit uh, as well. That's just another way of talking about the grave. Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. And here, death. Uh, David had not died, but he felt like he was dying because of the misery, the adversity that he was going through. It's also used to refer to the pit literally in Numbers 16.33. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them. That has the rebellion of Korah. And uh, the earth opened up and swallowed all of the rebellious priests. And Job 7.9, as the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who comes down to the grave does not come up. So it's talking there about the grave. So that title for that slide only applies to the uh, probably the first the first verse Psalm thirty verse three. If we look at Luke chapter sixteen, we see the, our understanding of Sheol given there. And this is a uh, uh, there's a lot of discussion today about the uh, meaning of this particular passage. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke sixteen, and let's look at this episode. When I was young, growing up, and young in the faith, and also in seminary, the Bible teachers that I studied under all defined a parable as a fictitious story, and that one of its characteristics were that the people were not named. It's a lot like a fable. Some of you are familiar with Aesop's fables, and you have the... um, various stories, but they're, they're, they're not named as individuals, and you have like the story of the tortoise and the hare, and, and these are just, just animals or people who stand for something. They're not named, and that's the way it is in the parable. You go through all of the clear parables that Jesus is teaching. For example, in Matthew 13, the parables related to the, to the kingdom, parables of the soils, No one is named. You have a king, you have a servant, you have 
uh, a wicked servant or an evil servant, or you have uh, the the in the parable of the ten virgins, you just have these ten bridesmaids, but no one is named. That sets it apart. In this episode, one individual is named Lazarus. That makes it a story about a person, not just a generic truth that you would have in a parable. And today, I understand that if you go to places like uh, Dallas Seminary, you'll very, find very few people who teach that. In fact, the horror stories I'm hearing from some of our own people who are going to Dallas and some of the uh, things that are going on up in uh, at Dallas Seminary in Dallas, it's just appalling what is considered acceptable today. Evangelicalism is just falling apart. And recently, I saw a letter written by a former professor, recent professor at the uh, United States Military Academy at West Point, and he's describing the complete collapse internally of the education system at West Point. This nation is falling apart internally, and part of it is what's happening in education. Now, that doesn't mean every school or every public school has is manifesting these traits, but when you get the elite schools of the nation falling apart in this way, then it is going to destroy the next generation because they don't know truth. In fact, I was talking to Tommy the other day, my good friend Tommy Ice, and Tommy's uh, youngest son, David, is a recent graduate of the Master's Seminary out in California. And after he graduated from the Master's Seminary, he uh, was on staff, on the pastoral staff at a church in Berkeley, a very conservative evangelical church in Berkeley, California. Those things usually don't go together. And they had a high number of, I, I can't give you an accurate percentage, but it was a high number, 30, 40% of the people had PhDs. It's a very well-educated congregation and conservative and uh, also a conservative Bible-based congregation. Uh, David has since left there. He's starting a church up in uh, Minnesota, and he was telling Tommy that as he's now <clears throat> on his own and he's trying to teach the Bible in a in, in this setting of a new church to a lot of millennials, he said, it's so difficult. They're so ignorant. They they are products of an education system. You, you think you've gotten down to the basic level of communication and and they're ignorant. Uh, they're either ignorant or they've been grossly misinformed about the basics of history. They don't know what happened. They don't know who these people are. It's you have to explain everything. They can't read with comprehension in many cases, and so it's difficult to get them to understand what a Bible verse is saying, just breaking it down in, into English. And this is this is devastating to a, to a culture to have its education system fall apart like this. And that's why I think that that homeschooling, a lot of private schools, uh, are going to be provide a, a salvation for for the nation. There's some public schools that are also very very good. I think there's a knee jerk reaction from conservatives that if you're teaching in a public school or you go to a public school, you can't get a good education. Uh, it all depends on where you are and who your teachers are. But there's definitely a negative trend in this country, and so. Um, uh, Whereas 30 or 40, 50 years ago, you could say, well, if that guy came out of Dallas Seminary, you can really trust him. 
Today, if he came out of Dallas Seminary after, I would say, 1970, you better really talk, think about it because I, I, I'm appalled sometimes at what I read some of my classmates are saying now and how they've shifted away from biblical orthodoxy. But then it's even worse in the, in the coming uh, younger generations. So when we look at this passage... I just say that to say there's this debate. You may run across it, and you need to understand this is a par- this is not a parable. This is talking about a real individual. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now, the rich man is not named, but this man is very wealthy. He eats well. He dresses well, but he's contrasted with this beggar, homeless person who begs outside of his gate outside of his home, and this beggar has a name. His name is Lazarus. It's not the Lazarus of John 11. He's got body sores. He's unpleasant to look at, and he's begging for food, desires the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, and even the dogs would come and lick his sores. So it was that the beggar died, and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, this is not heaven. This is talking about a compartment in Sheol or Hades, as the Greek counterpart term is, and he is taken to, to Abraham's bosom, which is also sometimes referred to as paradise. And we see that there is a, another section to paradise, which I mean to Sheol, which is called torments. And being in, uh, so it was a beggar died. He's in Abraham's listen. Then the rich man also died and was buried. And he's in torments in Hades. And he lifts up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So apparently there is some level of visibility or communication there that was allowed by the Lord. They can't cross over. And the rich man is in torments. There's another compartment that is mentioned in Second Peter that's called Tartarus. This is where the angels, the sons of God, and the demons in Genesis chapter six are incarcerated in uh, chains of darkness, according to Second Peter two four, and according according to Jude. So we're just talking about these two sections and. Then what happens, uh, we realize that Old Testament believers went to Abraham's bosom. In torment, you had unbelievers from all dispensations. And then the angels, the demons of Genesis 6 were in chains of darkness. According to 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4, paradise is now in heaven. It's no longer in Abraham, I mean, it's no longer in Sheol. So after the cross, Jesus took, transferred paradise from Sheol to heaven. And Old Testament believers in their interim bodies were with the Lord in heaven. That's according to 2 Corinthians 12.4 and also Revelation 12.7. So this helps us to understand what is being talked about in this particular section. When David Back in Psalm, uh, Psalm 18, when David talks about the cords <clears throat> of Sheol uh, surround him, 
Let me get back to that passage, Psalm 18. He says, <clears throat> The cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. He's talking about not this compartment. He's talking about death. That's clear from the parallelism. He's not talking about going to this compartment. It's not that use of the word. Then we come now to the next section. This is a section that describes God's supernatural deliverance of, of David in very graphic ways. Let me just read a part of this. It starts in, in uh, verse 6, and that gives a summary of what David did. And then starting in verse 7, it expands that to, um, to describe how God intervenes. In verse 6, David says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and I cried out to my God. So notice the parallelism between distress and cry. Uh, In his distress, I called upon the Lord, but cry isn't a synonym. It's not an antonym. It's a development. As a result of my distress, I cried to the Lord. It's what's called emblematic parallelism. So the principle here is that when we hit distress, We're to cry out to the Lord. The distress is a very picturesque word. It's the word sar, and it refers to being in a narrow and a tight place. And if you've ever gone through real adversity, if you've experienced grief because of a loss of a loved one, or you've gone through health crises, you've gone through financial crises, you've gone through uh, romantic crises, marital crises, you just feel pressured, you just feel like you're hemmed in, you just feel like something's pushing down on you, and you don't have any place to go. That's what's pictured by this word tsar. It's a, literally, it means a tight place, a narrow place where you're confined, where you're restricted, and it's a perfect place to talk about uh, a- adversity and what happens when we respond wrongly to adversity, and we're responding uh, and, and without applying the word, we just feel that pressure and, and restricted. And that's what's happening. David is feeling this pressure and this restriction. And his response is he calls out to the Lord. And these words are important to understand, too. They're in synonymous parallelism. He calls out to the Lord and he cries out to my God. And the word for calling out is kara, which means, which is a word that's frequently used for prayer. It's a generic word for calling and calling upon somebody, calling to God, but it is intensified with that second word to cry, which is the word shava in the, in the uh, Hebrew. It's in a PL stem. Sometimes people may wonder what, I, I put this up here because those who know Hebrew will be interested in this, but sometimes I point out why it's significant. The PL stem is a stem of intensification. So it's, it's screaming out for help. So you have to understand the, the profound emotion that is expressed here that David just feels like he's at the end of his rope. Everywhere he turns, Saul's trying to kill him. He has no place to go. It's the, the, This uh, pressure is never going to end. He seeks to get away from him geographically, and he goes to the Philistines, and there's still that pressure from those there who want to kill him. And so he is just, just crying out uh, audibly, that is the picture here, screaming out to God, 
uh, to help him. And then we see this again when we get down to the last line. It says, and my cry came before him. And that's this word at the bottom, Shavats, that both of these words are related. They're cognates. It's the same way God hears his scream to him that God would uh, provide for him and that God is going to take, take care of him. Uh, grammatically here, uh, the, it seems similar to what we saw in verse 3, I will call upon the Lord. But there it should be understood as stating, I call upon the Lord. This is my general way in which I respond to these situations. But now that we're in a different context, he's talking specifically about what happened in the past. So now it should be understood uh, to me, I called upon the Lord. I cried out to my God. And then you have God's response in the second part of it. Uh, we see some parallels, though, before I get to that. Uh, we see the parallels in the use of this terminology, this graphic language for, uh, for David's prayer, Psalm eighty-eight, thirteen. But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Psalm 119, 147, he says, I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. Now, I've known some people who were not morning people, and they really have a problem with these verses because I've also known people who are morning people like myself who think, oh, you see, you got to get up early in the morning and have your prayer time and read your Bible and do that when you're fresh. But there's a certain number of people whose fresh time of the day, I call them bats, their fresh time of the day is between about 10 o'clock at night and 4 in the morning. That's when they're at their peak moment. So, so this isn't a prescription that you should just pray in the morning or read your Bible in the morning. But I think that if we're going to make an application, it's when you are at your mental sharpest, when you are, are at your fo best focal point, that's when you should be uh, praying to the Lord. That's when you should be uh, reading, reading the Scripture. Uh, Psalm 31.22, David says, For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. And when I <clears throat> look at this, talk about this, the word supplication, that can refer to prayers for others or prayers for ourselves. Uh, uh, when we cry out to the God, I often use the, the acronym to teach about prayer, uh, CATS, C-A-T-S. C is for confession. We start making sure we have a clean slate. We confess sin. A is adoration. Adoration is when we praise God. We Thank him for what he's done. We reflect upon how God has interceded in our lives. We talk, think about who God is and his attributes. The T is for thanksgiving. We thank God for what he has done for us, for the way he has answered prayer, for the way he has provided for us. And then S is for supplications, and that includes intercession for others as well as prayers for ourselves. So that's a good way to remember it. Now, some prayers are just for confession. Some prayers, if you're already in fellowship or already uh, have confessed sin, it's just a prayer of praise and adoration. Others may be simply a prayer of thanksgiving, like this is a thanksgiving psalm. Others may be psalms of intercession and, and pleading. So each element can be a prayer in and of itself. You don't necessarily have to have all four 
uh, components there in, in every prayer. In the noun form of the word for cry is seen in Psalm thirty nine twelve. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am estranged with you. He feels like God's just not listening. He's not answering his prayers, as if he's just a, a, a soldier, sojourner. He's just drifting along. Psalm 102, 1, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. That's, that's the noun form. So it's very frequent throughout throughout the Psalms. Now, back in Psalm 18.6, I called upon the Lord. I cried out to my God. What's the response? He heard me. That's the major theme of this Psalm. God answers prayer. He heard my voice from where? From heaven? No, from his temple. Isn't that an interesting phrase to find out? He listens from his temple. The word for temple is the Hebrew word hechal which always describes, it can describe the palace or the house of the king, but it's used to describe also the house of the God, the, the, the temple. And this brings up something that's very interesting in studying the Psalms because again and again, David talks about the Lord in his temple. Think about it. Is there a temple when David lived? No. His son Solomon built the temple after David died. Well, some may say, well, maybe he's just using temple to refer to tabernacle. Well, in some places, there's, they're, they're different words. It's not the same. So what's he talking about? Well, let's look at what the Bible says about the heavenly temple. I think that's what he's talking about is God's temple in heaven. He's not talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the heavenly temple temple. And we find that, that what, what I'm going to say here is that David is so focused on God that he is living in the, as if that the, the temple of God in heaven is, is everything for him. That's his focal point. We would categorize this under the spiritual skill of living today in, in light of eternity. He's, he's not thinking about an earthly dwelling place for God. He's talking about his heavenly dwelling place. And number, so number one, what we see is that the Bible clearly talks about God's dwelling and that it is in the heavens. This is seen in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. We see uh, Psalm 115.3 and Psalm 11.4. Psalm 11.4. In fact, recently I've been hitting a lot of corollary passages in Psalm 11, which is a short psalm, and it's a great psalm. But Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. Now, if we just look at the first part of that, we see a parallelism between the holy temple and the throne. God's throne is in his holy temple. That is the throne room of God. And when we look at that phrase, we need to understand the term holy and what that means. The fact that it is holy, the word there, kadosh, is a word that means set apart, unique, or distinct. Uh, we've gone over this. I did it 
<clears throat> again in Isaiah chapter 6, when, when Isaiah is saying, or when the seraphim rather, are saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Holy is uh, reference to God's distinctiveness. He's unique and distinct in every attribute. He is sovereign, but there are human rulers that are sovereign, but not like God is sovereign. He is uniquely the king of kings. He is uniquely sovereign, the ruler of all creation. Uh, God is uniquely righteous and uniquely just and uniquely love. It all goes back to that creator uh, creature distinction so that holiness applies to every attribute of God. It, it often, uh, <clears throat> when I was younger and I heard different theologians, I think Dr. Ryrie did this and some others, they would look at righteousness and justice as a combination uh, and together that would refer to God's holiness. I've heard a lot of others uh, repeat that. But I had Al Ross, who was a Hebrew professor, well-trained in Hebrew, both had got his doctorate at Dallas Seminary and at Cambridge, and taught us how to do word studies. And so one of the word studies we had to do was on holiness. And as we studied holiness, I came to realize there's more to this than just righteousness and justice. It's God's uniqueness. And it's been interesting in, in uh, recent times, I've been uh, reading through some, some material that, that Al's written on the Psalms, and I had come to the conclusion that holy really should be translated as unique, and he has come to that same conclusion. Maybe that's something that he taught years ago, and I forgot that's where I got it. But that that's the idea. Holy applies to all of God's attributes. And so it is something that is distinct and set apart. So when it's applied to the temple, it is a unique temple. It's a distinct temple. It is God's special dwelling place. This is not just taught in the Psalms in the Old Testament. It's taught in the New Testament. In Hab or, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I misread that. I thought it said Hebrews. It's Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.20. We're not in the New Testament. We're still in the Old Testament. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him, his unique dwelling place in the heavens. And so all creatures should be silent before him. The picture here is a picture of uh, a lady uh, did some artwork, wonderful artwork for the book of Revelation, and this picture is the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, which is based on not only the descriptions of Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5, but also Exodus 24.10. They saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very he heavens in its clarity, you can see through it. So it's a picture of God's heavenly throne and heavenly dwelling place. As I pointed out in the introduction, the problem is that there's no temple when David is alive. He focuses a lot on the temple. It's not the tabernacle. It's not the earthly temple. It's this heavenly temple. So David says things like Psalm 138, verse 2. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness, your chesed, your faithful, loyal love, and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Now, there are a lot of people who think that those of us in the inerrancy camp, those of us who emphasize the centrality of God's word are guilty of bibliolatry. 
that we idolize the Bible. That's what bibliolatry means. But look at what God says here in Psalm 138, 2. You have magnified your word above all your name. God values his word. He makes that a priority. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It's the way in which we learn the gospel, we learn about God, and we grow to maturity. So David says, I will worship towards your holy temple. Psalm 27, 4 and 5, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. He's thinking in the, in the future the house of the Lord in heaven, all the days of my life that's going on into eternity, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He sees that, that he's able to do this in some sense now, to be present in that temple. Psalm 27, 5, he goes on to say, for in time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. That's in his life right now. When he's going through this trouble God is going to hide him in his pavilion. We saw that in the in the passage in Exodus. That's the, as it were, the floor of the temple. He will hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. See how tabernacle is used here. You have uh, in, in, in parallelism with with temple and pavilion in this passage. He shall hide me. He shall set me high on a rock. What a, what a tremendous set of verses to memorize and to claim his promises. And then, of course, one that is familiar to many people, the last verse in Psalm 23, all the days of my life, uh, excuse me, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what that's David's focus. So he's living in light of this eternity. But it's not just Old Testament. It's also New Testament, Hebrews. I knew New Testament was coming up. When I saw Habakkuk, I thought it was Hebrews. I was there all day. Hebrews 9-11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Notice the focus on the future. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle. The word for tabernacle means a dwelling place, a dwelling place of God. But it's not the one that, 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 that the Israelites made at Mount Sinai. He says, the more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. This is a, talking about a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly temple. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. So there he's saying that the temple, the tabernacle we have here, where did, where did Moses get the blueprints for the tabernacle? Where did David get the blueprints for the temple that, that Solomon built? It's that it was given, revealed by God, and there is a uh, an archetype that is the temple in heaven. Uh, <clears throat> the temples and tabernacle that we see are copies of the true, or copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So it's talking about this heavenly temple. It's also described in Revelation. Revelation 7.15, where you have the martyred uh, saints of the tribulation who are praying to God in the heavens, and you have the altar and the incense going up for the altar, and these are the prayers of the saints. And then John writes, Therefore they are before the throne of God. Their prayers are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That's in heaven, and it's connected to his throne. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. 
And then at the end of Revelation, in the new heavens and new earth, we learn that there won't be a temple. John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So this is going to, things will change in the new heavens and the new earth. I ran across this, um, this chart. It's in Randy Price's book that's now out of print called The Coming Last Day's Temple, and he adapted it from somebody else who adapted it from somebody else. <clears throat> so I adapted parts of it for this class. And it's a comparison between the earthly temple of the Old Testament and the heavenly temple. Both are called holy. The earthly temple is called holy in Psalm 5-7 and Psalm 79-1. The heavenly temple is called holy in Micah 1-2, Habakkuk 2-20, Psalm 11-4. There is a seven-branched candlestick or menorah in both the heavenly temple and the earthly temple. In the heavenly temple, that's in Exodus 26-35. And in the heaven, heavenly temple, that's described in Revelation 1-12. There are trumpets used in the earthly temple and in the heavenly temple. The earthly temple, Exodus nineteen thirteen through 19, and in the heavenly temple, Revelation 8, 2, and 6. Then there's the altar of sacrifice. There's an altar in the earthly temple and in the heavenly temple of sacrifice. Uh, earthly temple, Exodus 27, 1 and 2 and Exodus 39:39 and the heavenly temple is the altar of sacrifice is mentioned in Revelation 6:9 there's an altar of incense i just mentioned that revelation 7 is one place that it's mentioned the incense going up to god the prayers of the saints it's mentioned in the earthly temple in Exodus chapter 30 verses 1 through 6 and in Exodus 39:38 and the heavenly temple is mentioned in Revelation 8 three through five, among some other places. There are four horns of the altar in both temples, in the earthly temple in Exodus 30, verse 10, and in the heavenly temple in Revelation 9, 13. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in both the earthly temple and heavenly temple. In Exodus 25, chapter 25, in the earthly temple, and in Revelation eleven nineteen in the heavenly temple. There's a golden censer that's for carrying burning coals mentioned in both the earthly and heavenly temple. First Kings 7.50 in the earthly temple and First Kings 8.35 in the um, heavenly temple. That's probably Revelation 8.35. I didn't change the, uh, the book there. Revelation, that would be Revelation 8.3-5. through 5. Holy place is mentioned in both the earthly temple and heavenly temple, 1 Kings 7.50 in the earthly temple, and Hebrews 9.11-12 in the um, uh, heavenly temple. And then last, the Holy of Holies is mentioned in both in the earthly temple in Exodus 26.25-33, and in the heavenly temple in Revelation 4.9-10. So there is this heavenly temple that David focuses on. And that would be something that would be true for us. It's like Abraham, who is living for a future city. We're looking to the future, living our life today in light of eternity. Some of the passages that mention this, Romans 8, 3 through 5, talk about the golden altar, the altar of incense, the smoke of the incense. 
Revelation 9.13 talks about the four horns of the golden altar, and all of these tell us that something about this heavenly temple. So when, when David is talking about this, and he talks about God heard my voice from his temple, he's talking about God heard from his throne, from heaven, and that God rules and intercedes in the affairs of men. And then he concludes it by saying in verse 6, And my cry came before him even to his ears. So this concludes the prayer part. And then starting in verse 7, we're going to get into that response. And we'll come back to that starting with uh, Psalm 18, 7 uh, through 9 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue our study in Psalm 18 to be a challenge with what we learn about about Scripture, about you, Lord, about all that you've provided for us, and that when we are in the midst of our difficult times, our sorrows, our distresses, that we are to cry out to you, and that you will hear us from your heavenly temple. And today is different from the time of, of David, for we have Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor, and the Holy Spirit who also intercedes for us. And the Lord is interceding for us at the right at your right hand. And so, Father, we are confident that our prayers are heard and that you will either, either deliver us uh, away from those adversities and they will go away, or you will sustain us in the midst of them, or you will take us out of this life and remove us. But you will answer our prayer in one of those three ways. And we're thankful for that, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.